Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am so excited for today's return uh, guest, one of my favorite people, one of my one of the the last handful of columnists that I I make a point of reading, um, even when I may not be into the topic. There are certain people that you read for specific topics, and then there's certain people you just read because you like to read them and. Um, Megan sort of falls into both. So, of course, I am talking about Megan McArdle, who returns to the remnant uh, from somewhere in Massachusetts. Uh, Megan, welcome back. Thank you. I am in, uh, I, I'm coming to you from beautiful Nahant, Massachusetts, where I'm currently looking out the window at the ocean. It's pretty nice. Nice. I'm, I'm looking out the window at my spaniel, possibly rolling in some sort of squirrel poop. But uh, we'll just deal with that another time. By the way, how are the dogs? Uh, for the listeners who don't know, you have uh, Megan has two uh, horse-sized dogs. Yes, but like mini horses. Um, yeah, ponies. Yeah, ponies. Yeah. We have uh, we have two bull mastiffs, Blake and Sybil. Um, I have not seen them in a week because I've been up in Massachusetts, but I am um, super excited to see them <laughs> eventually. And they are great. They are just like bundles of hilarious, of hilarity and love. Um, they're, they're, they basically live to eat, destroy things, and lick your face. So, uh, and get on top of you. Uh, this is a big bull mastiff thing. They're big pinners. They huh. were originally known as the gamekeeper's night dog. I knew and that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, their job was to catch poachers. And so they don't, they're not biters and they don't bark. They're, they're quite silent, with the exception of Sybil, who's the only barky bull mastiff I have ever met. Um, but what they do is they just, they're trained to, they were trained to leap on poachers and pin them down. And so there's stories about, I think the best one was about a burglar broke in to the family's house while they were away. <laughs> um, for like, they got stuck in a snowstorm or something, they couldn't make it back. Anyway, so the, the dog corners the burglar and they came back like 24, 36 hours later to find that the dog had just kept the burglar <laughs> <laughs> in the corner the entire time, this poor terrified guy. So, I, have, yeah. I have I not that much sympathy for the burglar, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if you why there's a sh- new TV series called um, The Old Man with Jeff Bridges. 
I haven't John seen it yet, but I, I have my eye on it. Yeah, so I I really like it. Um, uh, it's uh, this is not a huge spoiler, and it's sort of on point. Um, Jeff Bridges has two extremely well disciplined Rottweilers in the show, and they are basically a um, uh, an amplifier of his uh, abilities in many ways. And like it, it pings a thing for uh, my wife and I is that. I don't know if you went through this, but like shortly after nine 11, like a lot of people in Washington started talking about like preparedness and, and, and like, uh, how to get out of town or, you know, post-apocalyptic stuff. And then the walking dead started. And it was just like one of these things I talked about a lot. We always used to talk about how we would need like, like some number of very well-trained, very loyal dogs that would serve as our, basically our Praetorian canine Praetorian guard. And, um, this re- and the old man really brings that back. Like you just you just sit there and envy about how awesome it would be to always know that these dogs are just there to have your back. I, I, I well, get I the just sense assume the, Zoe is your attack spaniel. Zoe is the dingo. Oh, uh, Pippa. Zoe is the dingo. I'm sorry, yeah, I, Pippa. Okay. I, yeah. I don't know which is which. I just yeah, know that I, I assume that I assume that Pippa is your your attack spaniel. Yeah, I mean, a attack spaniel basically she will pull put her full weight on the top of your feet. Um, which is an incredibly lame Kung Fu style. (laughs) Um, so anyway, uh, we're not going to get too deep in the weeds because everybody's been talking about it. It's it's sort of been talked to death a little bit, uh, about the, we're recording this on Wednesday. Yesterday was the testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. Um, you didn't get a chance to watch the hearings, but, um, I guess, you know, just sort of top line kind of thing. Are you surprised? Are you capable of being surprised about uh, what Trump did or allegedly did, you know, on January 6th? I mean, I suppose I would be surprised to find out that he'd actually shot someone on Fifth Avenue that day. (laughs) But other than that, no. I mean, I think we knew that he he wanted chaos. He I mean, his ego is such that it was not possible. He would do anything rather than admit that he lost an election, including like imperil American democracy. You know, what is what is American democracy compared to Trump's van- wounded vanity? Right. Um, I mean, in, in fairness, <laughs> Trump's wounded vanity may be larger and, and more enduring, <laughs> larger and more enduring, <laughs> more visible from space. Yes. You know. <laughs> than American democracy at this point. Um, no, I, I'm not shocked at all. I mean, it's sort of, I think the shocking thing is that, that Republicans know all this and they are willing to go along with it. They're willing to pretend that this doesn't matter. And that's not, I'm not, I guess I'm not that surprised, but at the same time, I, I am still capable of some level of disappointment and I find it profoundly disappointing that there are a bunch of people who are just pretending that this doesn't matter. Um, and you know, it's fine to say, well, the left is I'm worried about this or the X or Y or Z, you know, I'm not even at this point at the point of trying to argue Republicans into voting for a Democrat. I voted for Joe Biden. I've been open about this. Um, I thought not because I love Joe Biden, but because I thought Trump had just proven himself so manifestly unfit that you had to decide with whoever was not going to be him and had the plausible chance of, of getting him out of office. Um, but I'm not even trying that. I'm just like, let's not pretend that this didn't happen and that it's not really important. There's a there's a scene in Working Girl. Um, I've always wanted a gif of it. 
<laughs> I've never been able to find one. But it's the, the this movie is basically this uh, 1980s uh, Harrison Ford, Melanie Griffith, where this woman's woman steals her secretary's idea. She's an investment banker secretary and then get breaks her leg and is off in a hospital. And so her secretary basically like pretends to work for the firm and like does this whole deal. And at the end gets caught, found out. And so um, there's a scene between her and Sigourney Weaver, who's her plays her boss where the, she's leaving with her stuff in a box and, and Sigourney Weaver says like, are, you know, are, are you stealing more stuff? Right. And, Melanie Griffith just looks at her and says, like, don't you ever like you, you know, you win whatever, but don't you ever pretend that you and I don't know what really happened here. Yeah. Yeah. And that is how I feel about this is that, like, don't don't try to pretend that we don't understand what happened because we all understand what happened. Donald Trump was willing, like, literally didn't care if a if a mob lynched the vice president. Yeah. For the sin of certifying a properly conducted election. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you on that. It's it's this, it's, it's, I mean, gaslighting has been so overused as a term. Indeed. But, like, you and I are in the argument business. We like arguments. It's, like, literally a hobby of ours to have arguments. And, but there's something particularly infuriating about making some things into something that there's a reasonable argument about, you know? And so like, there's a reasonable argument. Like maybe this January 6th committee screwed up about, you know, having her tell the story about the secret service agent in the car. We don't know yet. Yada, 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 yada. There's an argument about what that says about the rest of her testimony. You find whatever it's, there's just not like, like it is, it is so overwhelmingly obvious that Donald Trump was a bad actor on January 6th, that the mob was doing something bad (laughs) and that, um, um, and that if there were a good defense of any of this, the people who have access to the real facts at the time wouldn't be pleading the fifth amendment or defying subpoenas. Right. I mean, it's like, we hear constantly how, um, the committee is improperly structured and it is improperly structured. Right. And it should have been, you know, the original commission style thing, which Democrats wanted and Republicans refused to vote for Fine. But like the idea that, um, they always say, well, you know, with the, the, the fatal flaw of the committee is that you can't hear from the other side. I agree with that. It is a bad, I don't know if it's a fatal flaw, but it's a serious flaw. The people on the quote unquote, the other side have plenty of other venues to give the other side. They could be going on Fox all day long saying, look, this is not what happened. I didn't do that. Yada, yada, yada. They're not doing that. And that's kind of telling. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, I, I think, and, and here's the thing is one of the reasons that the committee is, I agree that there's a problem that it's a unipartisan committee, right? Except for Cheney. Um, but it's, that that was because Republicans wanted it that way. Republicans didn't want to participate in a right. in a bipartisan commission because they would have had to, you know, engage with the facts of this case, and they can't. Yeah, they yeah. cannot. They cannot mount even the kind of dumb defense of you know if any anyone who watches normal congressional hearings, you just I mean they're they're this tedious performative thing where like 
you know, one witness is a Democratic witness. So the Democrats are like, sir, is it true that you like to wet rescue Guatemalan orphans in your spare time? And right. the Republicans are like, sir, is it true that you jaywalked four times last night? <laughs> like, it's just totally like these performative things where they're just scoring points. Republicans don't have any points to score. They have nothing. And that is why they're sitting this out because they don't have an answer because they can't come up with a soundbite that refutes any of this um, because it happened. And that's how bad it is. It is so bad that there is not another side. Yeah. And, and that's, I'm that's like my the, thing. The, the mistress of the both sides in constantly. Every time I write a column on Twitter, oh, both sides in. Well, like, you know, I'm not both sides in this because there is no, there's no justification. There's no other side. Yeah. I mean, the only, I mean, there is the lawyerly, you know, debaters tactic where they see this vast tapestry of guilt and then they say, look at this pattern in this square. This is wrong. And it's like, okay, fine. But like first concede there's this tapestry. And then anyway, it just gets extremely frustrating. So, and I'm sure we will revisit this anon. Um, so there was other news this week. I don't know if you caught that um, in the last seven days, but the Supreme Court had this little decision um, called um, Dobbs v. Mississippi. And uh, uh, they overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, and some people are... Um, Concerned about that, um, he said in forced understatement. So uh, where do you come down on all that? And then we can take it from there. Yeah, so I have long been um, anti-Roe. Um, not not necessarily pro-life, but anti-Roe. I think it was a bad decision, which like basically... You know, I mean, you can tell what a bad decision it is by how hard by how hard the left has to struggle to defend it on any grounds other than stare decisis, which is uh, for listeners who are not following the legal, you know, chatter uh, along at home. Stare decisis just means you're supposed to get the courts are supposed to give deference to to president. Um, and the fact that that's where the left of all people <laughs> are going after decades of of encouraging courts to take you know muscular action. Um, and in fact, when Roe itself was a just conjured out of emanations and penumbras, um, with no real constitutional logic, just, you know, black men who wrote it thought that, thought that abortion should be legal. And so, and he had a job where he could make that happen and he did. And that's fundamentally, I mean, there's, there's more in the decision, but that's really what happened. Yeah. Um, I think that challenged the legitimacy of the court. It kicked off what was ultimately the court wars because it left conservatives no choice, right? It left pro-lifers no choice except to get control of the court. That was the only way you could make abortion law. Well, they got control of the court. And now, like, the left is outraged about that. But, like, this is, this is uh, as I wrote in a discarded line from a column, this is a bit like a thief who is outraged, if this is really so illegitimate, then Democrats are in the position of a thief who is outraged when when some other thief boosts his cache of stolen goods, right? I <laughs> right. mean, um, you know, like, or that, the, do you remember, you must remember, Jonah, the, uh, when we were in high school, that, uh, that, that partnership for a drug-free America commercial. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where did you learn this? Son, I learned it from you, Dad, okay? Yeah. I learned it from you, right? <laughs> like, um, I, one of my closest friends still will say that from time to time, just shout at me in various contexts. <laughs> I learned it from you, Dad. <laughs> and and so, you know, I think it it has ruined our politics. It was a bad decision for one thing. It just hadn't it had no sound legal grounding. 
um, it ruined our politics because it has turned congressional and presidential politics into a referendum on who gets to appoint the actual lawmakers. Right. And I think if you look at um, if you look at Trump, for example, one of the really interesting patterns is that people who went to church regularly, they were the least likely to vote for Donald Trump in the primaries. And yet they all turned out for him in the general, even though many of them expressed real visceral disgust with him. Why? Row. It's the courts. They were single issue voters on the courts. Right. And I think that that has been just a dangerous and unhealthy dynamic. It's also allowed people, it's made a rhetoric about abortion more extreme. Now, without disrespecting anyone who holds either the extreme pro-choice or extreme pro-life views, you know, about 20% of the country wants um, abortion banned in all but cases of like where the life of the mother is at stake. Um, even, even, even the real hardcore, most people would not say that like, if mom is going to die of preeclampsia at right. like, uh, at four months, she should be, she should die rather than, you know, cause at this point you can't save the baby if mom dies. Right. Right. Um, and even the, the most hardcore pro-choicers, most of them aren't really actually, if you, if you probe what they, what they believe, for example, like they support late-term abortion, but they are under the misimpression that all late-term abortions are basically for severe fetal abnormalities or for the health of the mother, and that's not really true. Right. Um, there are other reasons that people get abortions late-term, including like, well, my relationship fell apart or something else. And it's, you know, I don't want to just, but a lot, there are a lot of, I think, people who would say legal at any point who might still be actually uncomfortable with that and fine with saying like, no, actually you, you gotta be, it's, it's gotta be severe fetal abnormality or some other thing that's going to kill you or severely damage you, um, to allow a late term abortion. Right. But you know, that's, it's about 20% are on the basically nothing except life of the mother. About 25% are on like legal up to the point of birth. Um, and everyone else is in the middle. But here's the thing. Roe turned our debate instead of deciding where are the limits? What, you know, what exceptions do we make? Rape, incest, you know, are there trimester? Most people, I think, are pretty comfortable with first trimester abortions and then not so much as you get later. Instead of having that debate, we instead had a binary debate. Roe or no. And Roe or no is not a good debate, right? Because, in fact, Roe had set abortion limits were much more liberal, A, than Europe has, and B, than most people were really comfortable with. And the reason they liked Roe is that they actually didn't know that, right? Right. right. Um, and so we didn't do the hard work of deciding what the community standards are on this, about thinking of thinking through the problem. It was completely, it was free for Republicans to take a no exceptions, even in cases of rape and incest, because there wasn't going to be an incest survivor. There wasn't going to be a 14-year-old girl showing up on camera being forced to carry her father's baby to term. Right. But that's going to happen now if you if you don't make those exceptions. And they're going to have to deal with that. And it's going to test their commitment to that, like, philosophy 101, nope, no exceptions, you know, it's a it's a life and it's not its fault. And, and, like, I, I understand that point. I can see that point, just as I can see the point that, like, you know, no one has a right, no human being has a right to hijack my body to support themselves. Um, I can see both of those arguments at a kind of philosophy 101 level, but I don't think that that's where most people operate on this. And I don't think that you can operate a big, you know, a, a huge diverse democracy, a pluralistic society on the philosophy 101 debating principles. I think you can for a certain limited number of things like free speech and so forth. But when you get beyond those, you, you 
get into, you know what, we have to actually figure out where we stand on this and deal with all of the mess and the muddle and come to something that people can live with. Because if they can't live with it, if you don't give people what the Supreme Court fundamentally did was it said you can't, there's no way to work within the system except to get control of the courts, right? And and that's a that's an unhealthy thing to do. That's why courts should leave questions to legislatures. And indeed, I actually think courts should, I've really evolved on this. I think courts should leave questions to legislatures, even when I think that the constitutional argument is a lot stronger than Roe. So like, I think that the Second Amendment clearly protects an individual right to bear arms. I am somewhat uncomfortable with how far, how fast the court is moving. It's striking down gun regulations, not because I think it's legally wrong, but because I think there's a kind of democratic legitimacy that has to be maintained and taking mm-hmm. these questions out of out of the hands of voters undermines that democratic legitimacy and cohesion and so like i i think that we just we have had a bad abortion debate for 50 years um and i think that we are now at the right place which is throwing it back to the states and um letting them have that debate but boy it's going to be angry and messy in the in you know the, the short term is going to be a mess yeah i i we're in violent agreement on this <laughs> i because like I, I was just talking about it with this Jay. I wrote my column about it, about how we are now going to see people like you split off. And I don't mean like you in the, I, I just mean that there were people who were for overturning Roe because they were for overturning Roe. And then there were people for overturning Roe because that was a necessary step towards protecting life from conception onward. And those two positions can, you can hold both of those positions if you want, but you don't have to. And, um, it, there's an enormous number of people who sounded like they were like equally committed pro-lifers who were really just saying, get rid of Roe. And now they actually have to say what their actual position is on abortion. I think it's very telling. Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, these guys want to stay at 15 weeks. Um, Chris Sununu in, in New Hampshire is going to say abortion is going to stay um, uh, legal in his state. And um, even Kemp and... Georgia, you know, he's sticking with six weeks, but again, that's not the pure pro-life position. And so we're going to see a whole new sort of schism on the last, what was the last stool of the three-legged stool of conservatism. And I think it's going to be very unpredictable, but the part of the problem, and again, we agree on this, but like part of the problem is that it's sort of like, you know, you can't, the, the smartest thing to do if you see someone with a knife sticking out of their chest, isn't necessarily to pull the knife out. Yes. Right. Fun and fact. S- yeah. They might be holding an order together. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't like get them to a hospital and let the hospital do it. Do not pull the knife out of, this is actually literally a thing. Don't pull the knife yeah. out of someone's chest. Leave it. And, um, or similarly, like, like, you know, they used to have those, I don't know if they still do those warnings on the motorcycle helmet that if you have an accident, it's for the person who finds your body, you're still <laughs> alive body don't take off the helmet because if you have like a brain injury, the swelling, the helmet is holding your skull in place. And, um, but anyway, the reason I I bring that up is that I agree. Roe is bad law and, um, it was made up and, and I agree with the majority, but it's, the problem is, is that, and this is a very Ruth Bader Ginsburg point, but like, we now have millions of people on the both sides of the argument 
who have been indoctrinated, in, and I don't mean this in like some sort of cultish way, I just mean literally like in the old-fashioned sense of indoctrinated, they've accepted a doctrine about abortion that they otherwise wouldn't have had Roe never been passed. Because I agree with you, it's minorities who take the extreme position on the pro-life side or the, the pro-choice side, but they're significantly sized minorities, and they have outsized activist power within the the two parties and um um and it's and had it not been for roe i don't think i don't think you get the pro-life movement i mean the remember even the protestant sort of evangelical christian side was not really big in the pro-life stuff for quite a while they considered that a catholic thing and it was sort of combined with the rise of the religious right, that it became a defined thing. If you hadn't had Roe, you wouldn't have had that. I mean, you might have had some something else, but it wouldn't have been what the pro-life movement became. And I'm not saying that, 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 that the pro-life movement was wrong, necessarily. I'm just, as a matter of political analysis, you can't unring the bell for these millions of people who are now bought into a philosophical position. And it could take a generation to unwind people's positions where they have to live with the scary stories, the, the bad stories on both sides, because just as you're right, there are going to be some terrible stories about victims of rape having to carry babies to term or, or, or potentially have to, uh, my sense is most of those people will find the, yes. the car, the transportation money to get to a nearby state. But you'll also have stories and they will be few and far between, but they will be enough because all you need is one in the media, in the media age of someone having a, an abortion in the eighth month with a fully viable fetus. And that will set off people. And um, it's going to be a mess for a long time. You're going to have some woman is going to abort an, a late-term baby and her ex-boyfriend is going, who begged her not to, is going to be on camera waving right. the sonograms around and saying, like, I wanted to take the baby. It was eight months old. She couldn't wait a month. She yeah. killed my baby, right? That's going to happen, too. Yeah. Um, now, will that get on the mainstream media? We'll see. But, um, you know, there, there is a sense in which, but it'll make Fox News and it'll play nonstop on Tucker Carlson yeah. um, on basically a continuous loop. And yeah, it's going to be ugly. It's, this is a phenomenon in social science known as path dependence. And I think the best way to explain it is that quitting smoking is not the same thing as never having smoked. Right. Um, and we are quitting a bad habit of these extremely expansive mid-century decisions that weren't super well-grounded in prior law, that kind of legislated the preference of a pretty narrow class of educated elites um, by judicial fiat, and we're unwinding those. And I think that in some, a lot of cases they had to be unwound. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to unwind, for example, the Miranda decision, but I also think it is somewhat exaggerated the extent to which the Supreme Court limited that. They just, uh, this was, I, for those, like, I know everyone's paying attention to Dobbs, but in fact, there's been a bunch of decisions. There was a big um, New York State gun rights case. There are two religious liberty cases in which um, the court really undid this kind of mid-century consensus that separation of church and state meant that like religion couldn't get anywhere within a zillion yards of your school or government office or else it would be tainted and, you know. Um, so they have ruled uh, that, it, that Maine's private school voucher program cannot discriminate against religious schools and that a coach who wants to pray after the game on the 50 yard line, uh, is entitled to do so. Um, and that, that's a big shift. 
Um, and there was a shift on Miranda as well, which is, you know, the famous Miranda warning, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law that you have heard on a zillion TV procedurals. That was actually the product of a mid-century decision. And um, the court set, has left it mostly standing in that if you are not Mirandized, whatever you say then cannot be used in a court case. Um, but there had been, there was a, a defendant who was not properly Mirandized who then was taken to trial using some of the evidence they obtained, but then he won, he was acquitted. Um, and he wanted to sue the police officer who didn't Mirandize him. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You, you know, fruit of the poison tree, you can't, they can't use the evidence against you, but there's no harm here. You, you were acquitted and you can't, you don't get to go the extra mile and, and, and sue as well. Um, now I think there's an argument both ways. Um, for whether they should have allowed that, because in fact, I think fruit of the poison tree is a kind of bad way to handle a lot of these illegal search questions and the, the, you know, the civil rights questions precisely because like, I mean, maybe the police officer cares that you got off because he didn't Mirandize you, but he might care a lot more about properly Mirandizing people if he thought he might get sued. Um, or she, sorry, I don't mean to be uh, gender specific, um, or, or they, um, but, uh, you know, but it's not like they gutted Miranda and said, you don't, you don't have to be informed of your rights. They just said like, you can't sue, you can, you only get certain remedies and suing is not one of them. Um, so, I mean, this is a big thing. And the thing that I worry about actually, even though, again, I think a lot of these cases are rightly decided as a matter of law. The thing I worry about is that conservatives having gotten control of the court on the thesis, they needed to do this to undo all of that, like legislating from the bench are now just going to start legislating from the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, or or even, I think, as I say, it's not that I think that Heller and all of the cases that followed it were wrong as a matter of law. I support gun rights. And yet, I don't want to see them done through the court. I want to see them done through the legislatures, precisely for the same reason that I think Roe ne- that abortion, regardless of your opinion on it, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, I just think the right place to do it is not through the courts because it, it can't be. And one thing I really worry about is that conservatives are now going to be tempted to, first of all, try to pass a, uh, a national abortion ban, which would be a disaster. Um, and second of all, you know, there is a movement in the conservative legal community currently small, but, um, doesn't mean it will stay that way. Um, to rule that the, the fetus has a 14th amendment, right? that basically that that says you you can't you can't let someone kill that that fetus um and i think again regardless of whether you think this is right legally regardless of whether you think um that that's right morally uh i will plagiarize from uh from abraham lincoln and say no nation so constituted can long endure no nation, which is not only federalizing these these questions, but handing them to basically five or six unelected judges, that it, we can't hold together as a country that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I worry about this too because, and I'm a both sidesism person. Also, I just rampant pox on everybody's house kind of guy. But um, we live in a moment where, in some ways, like. Again, I think the decision was right, but in some ways, this moment couldn't have come at a worse time in the sense that on the left and the right, there has never been in our lifetimes more animosity for procedural liberalism, right? For 
going through the due diligence on questions of law and legitimacy and policy. Everyone wants to get rid of the filibuster. You know, everyone wants to like, and, 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 you know, and people forget that Trump harangued uh, McConnell to get rid of the filibuster when he was in power. Um, it is just not obvious to me that there are enough people on the right who will want to remain consistent now that they don't have to and say, look, I was against judicial activism when the left was doing it to us. And I'm still going to be against it when the right can do it for us. And I, you know, some of us will keep saying that, but I, I just don't know if there are enough of them. You, you did say something that I'm not trying to be trollish, but I do want to sort of point out and I want to kind of get your take on it. The, when you mentioned sort of the, the gender or non-binary gender of the criminal or whatever, one of the remarkable things, it reminded me, like I've talked to John Pod about this a little bit on the Glop podcast, but the, one of the most remarkable things in the last week, or not well, last week, last four days since Roe was overturned, um, is how virtually every leading progressive politician and activist now feels perfectly comfortable saying woman again. Um, you know, there was a, uh, you know, there was this growing thing, which I think was horribly amplified on Twitter and doesn't really reflect real, real life that much, but, you know, calling, you know, mothers chest feeders and, and we have to talk about people who menstruate and, you know, yes, men can be pregnant too and all that, all that stuff. And I'm not trying to minimize uh, the real world cases about, you know, people being intersex or transgender or whatever. That's not my point. My, my question is, do you think that the enormity of Roe for, uh, of the overturning of Roe for the, the, for, for progressives writ large is such a bigger deal that will cause a lot of activists just to say, Hey, look, w as a political matter, we can't do this transgender stuff right now we have to talk about women because we're trying to appeal to voters and 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 people who who will 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 hear the transgender shibboleths and react very very differently you know it's like i uh, the it's it, it's sort of like the latinx stuff right it, like if it, it, it is defending the abortion rights such a bigger priority that talking in this pro very online progressive lingua franca uh is it just too expensive politically to do anymore because you know they're trying to they're trying to activate women to vote as women for democrats to protect the right to abortion and if you muddy it up with you know all the the birthing person stuff you're gonna you're gonna as david shore would argue you'll probably chase away more voters than you attract so I think that this is a really interesting question. And, and when the Dobbs decision leaked, um, I wrote a column pointing out all of the people who had, you know, not talked about women or like the ACLU. I think it was the ACLU that was weirdly like, you know, this this especially affects LGBT people. It's like, well, <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of lesbians who are super worried about. I mean, like, I think they might be as a political matter, but I don't think right. that they were personally super worried about like not being able to get access to an abortion. Right. Statistically um, speaking, there, I'm sure there are individ speaking, individual sure there are, cases. Yes, yes but I like, can come up with corner cases where that's, yeah, a, but, yeah. 
in general, most of the people who are going to need abortions are people who are having heterosexual sex. Um, And like, well, I mean, everyone who needs an abortion is having biologically male female sex um, without, you know, sort of digging into the various uh, epistemological questions about. (laughs) um, um, But the, you know, but also, you know, like, yes, there's rape, there's other questions, but in general, right, this is, these are, these are corner cases. These are not right. the normal things that people that in the average ordinary course of events. Um, and I think that this, and I wrote, so I wrote a, a column just basically pointing out like, this is the woman is what's what sociologists call a thick identity, right? Which is to say it, it influences like everything, right? If you're a woman, it means that you are a sister instead of a brother. It means that you are a daughter instead of a son. It means that you're a wife instead of a husband, right? And then that cascades into all sorts of other things, all of your social roles, how you dress, right? Like all of these things. And also then like fundamental biological realities, right? Um, You know, did like, did you get your first period? And was that embarrassing? And all of that, like all that stuff that like, now not every woman has been through every every experience, right? I have not had children. I don't know what childbirth is like. Um, but like there were enough of them that they, they bind into this common identity and that thick identities are really easy to mobilize. Right. And so you think about what are the most powerful political groups, things like old people, very powerful. There's a lot of them and it's a thick identity. It, it has, it, you know, it, are you working? Are you doing like a, how much medical care do you need? All of these things. Um, if you're a woman, that's a thick identity, which is why if you look at things like funding for diseases, like breast cancer way outperforms any other kind of cancer relative to the number of people that it um, that it kills in terms of funding. We fund it way out of proportion. Why? Because breast cancer has a an activist base that is attached to that disease, and prostate cancer does not. Guys don't identify as, there's not really a, a parallel men's movement, and no one really identifies as like a person with a prostate. And so when you we try to disaggregate that thick identity into thin identities, like people with services, well, it was actually, sorry, people with cervixes, but I'm going to do the, <laughs> the correct Latin. I think it's, I'm now going to find out this is the incorrect Latin. Some Latinist is going to like, you know, I think it is services. Um, that people with, you know, so when they talk about pap smears, people with cervixes should get a pap smear. And I'll like, in this effort to be inclusive of a very small number of trans men or trans women, um, you're you're disaggregating that identity and, and and you're making it way less politically powerful. That said, and I think that people did kind of look up and say, is this really what we want to do? But I still saw after the decision, I did see a lot of like birthing people, people who can get pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that this is kind of the problem on the left with intersectionality or the strength of you prefer. But like the 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 left has gotten into a place where it's like everything is intersectional, right? You know, you see these, these litanies on, on Twitter periodically, right? If you're, if you're, um, if your feminism isn't anti-racist, it's BS. If your feminism isn't like pro LGBT, it's BS. And like down if if your feminism isn't interested in class, economic class, like, and poverty and down the line. And the problem with that is that, you know, as a lot of people have pointed out in recent weeks, it leads to a kind of paralysis where like everything is about everything. And so individual groups that used to focus on one thing and be really powerful on that one thing are instead trying to do 
racism and sexism and and trans you know transphobia and poverty and all of it all of the anti-colonialism and all of it at the same time and it means that they're not doing any one thing well Mm-hmm. Instead, they get paralyzed by these internal disputes because by groups who think who want, you know, to do more of one of the other things that wasn't their core agenda. Um, and they're they're less influential on the thing that was their core agenda. And I think that this is a, just a broad issue with intersectionality is it's led the left to a place or like part of the left. There's also an old kind of Jacobin, you know, the, the guys at Jacobin, the women too at Jacobin. Um, the people at Jacobin <laughs> really just digging into the gender hole today. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the, the folks at Jacobin, you know, those people who are much more, just much more focused on class and want to like downgrade the identity politics stuff and upgrade the economic class stuff. Um, but for a big portion of the left, especially the foundation driven left that funds a lot of these nonprofits, um, they're totally wrapped up in trying to be all things to everyone all the time. And no one can do that. There's a, you know, specialization is good, right? It's, it, this is like why it's the, the powerhouse of the modern economy is specializing, which is why I do not go grow my own food and make my own clothes and all the rest of it. Cause I'm good at one thing, or I like to think I'm good at one thing, which is writing <laughs> columns and talking on podcasts. And then there are other people who are better at making clothes than I am. And so I let them do it. And th- the left is losing that. And it's, it's, a real problem. And I, I think it is hampering their effectiveness. And this like this linguistic problem is one of the major ways. Um, but I also think that it, it, there's a danger in doing that, which is that at some point people within the coalition, they care a lot about getting their thing done. And if staying in the coalition means that they can't get that thing done, they may exit the coalition. You know, it's, it's alienating to people um, on the margins, not the core people. They're going to keep doing what they're doing, but you, you shed members who are actually really interested in their one issue and happy to coalition with you on other stuff, but not if the price of that is that they can't actually get the climate change stuff done that they wanted to do. Right. Um, and the, the left strength has been that it had a lot of diverse groups, which gave it a, a foothold in a lot of different communities. The left's weakness now is that holding that many diverse groups into one coalition is actually just a much harder task than the republic than the conservatives have where they're holding a few much larger groups into one coalition. Yeah, I mean I find this stuff probably too fascinating um for my own good. Uh maybe it's cuz you know in college I took more classes on Foucault than I did on the Federalist Papers, but um this whole like I mean it, it, of the abiding themes of this podcast, stay in your lane is like way up there. Um, and I, I, as a, as sort of a description of how to save democracy and, and, and have a healthy society is you need institutions that are there to do what that institution is supposed to do and not try to do everything. Um, agree with that entirely. Um, but you know, one thing you sort of left out is, um, and I don't think, you disagree with it, but like there's an additional problem with talking about birthing persons and chest feeders and, and, and all of that kind of thing, which is that the identity of womanhood and particularly motherhood needs to have a concrete definition in order for it to be a thick identity. And it's sort of like, I mean, I'm still, I'm fascinated at, and I, I just talked about this with Christine Rosen recently, but you know, like remember Rachel Dolezal who literally mm-hmm. 
was not just blackface, but like black body uh, to like pretend to be black. So she could be the head of, I think it was the Portland NAACP chapter. And she identified as black, but she wasn't black. And, um, and, you know, with some exceptions, you know, like Whoopi Goldberg said it was fine. Uh, but like for the most part, you know, black people, black, black influencers for want of a better term, were outraged or disgusted or dismissive or contemptuous of this, right? Because she didn't have the black experience. Being black isn't a choice, yada, yada, yada. It is amazing how that logic works for policing who can call themselves black, but it is completely rejected as bigotry when it comes to who can call themselves a woman and, or a man. And, um, and, but so the but the problem is is that if you want to it's sort of like there's a reason why the marines are the most popular branch of the military is because they expect more from you to be to have that identity right there's a there's a there's a you have there's serious buy in and if you start telling people that there's no buy in to being a mom or a mother or whatever other than just simply picking a different label um, you're insulting <laughs> some significant portion of those people who think, no, look, I had a serious, you know, I paid my dues to be a woman or a mother or whatever. And, um, I think that that's, um, it's one of the reasons why, like, you know, if you look at the David Shore data, people actually get the Democrats or the Democratic coalition loses more people by the inclusive language than it attracts precisely because the, the people who have these identities as a normal part of their normal lives, um, don't like a bunch of rich, white, pointy headed, uh, progressives telling them how they have to identify themselves and who they have to include in their categories. And it's just, it's really bad cultural politics. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's an interesting conversation. So I did a series of columns on Leah Thomas, the mm -hmm. pen swimmer who became very controversial as a trans woman. Um, it was a super interesting experience. Um, one thing that really stuck out to me was that I was a little nervous about doing it, honestly. Like I, and I almost I didn't blame write the first column. I was like, I was writing it and I thought, oh, you know, I need to do more research. And then I was like, no, you know what? I don't need no more research. I need a spine. And so, <laughs> I, and it was like, it was like, it wasn't even, it wasn't against Leah Thomas swimming. I actually was just annoyed by the kind of weird pretense that maybe Leah Thomas was not experiencing some enduring advantages from having gone through male puberty, which obviously had, like, Leah Thomas went from being, you know, somewhere, depending on how you rank, somewhere between the 460th and 550th ranked swimmer in the country in the men's swim when competing for the Penn's men's team and then went to number one while competing for the women's team. Right. Um, I, I think it was very implausible. This was all just, although I did see someone made the most wonderful, they were like, um, they were asked about this and they were like, well, you know, it's wonderful what people can do when they get over their internalized transphobia. <laughs> and i was like i don't i don't just i like i'm sure that that may well have been holding thomas back from some level of performance but i i'm skeptical that that is explaining the entire right uh the entire gap 
so I just said, I just wrote that. I just said like, look, there's obviously, we're gonna have to talk about this. We can't just hope. The hope, I think for a lot of people who've been making these arguments, there's not, you know, there's no evidence that there's any enduring gap. Like there was evidence, but we don't know. They were kind of falling back on radical skepticism. Who can tell? And I was like, well, now we can tell. And we're going to have to talk about this. And we can't just fall back on the hope that it's not going to matter. Because the hope was you could say this and like people, you know, it's not, there aren't going to be enough of these athletes to make a difference. But, you know, Thomas won the NCAA championship in an event. Like that's, that's major. It's not a small thing. So what happened when I'm writing this, so many people were like, thank you for writing this. This is so brave. And I was like, like brave is the last word you want to hear as a columnist because it means you're about to get fired. Yeah. But, um, but this is the interesting thing is like nothing happened. Yeah. Um, but the other interesting thing with like, you know, I didn't, there was no, there was actually a surprising little pushback. Um, I think I was careful. I wasn't like, this is an outrage, blah, blah, blah. I was just like, I don't think this is, I'm looking at the evidence and the evidence seems to suggest that Thomas is getting an advantage from this, which is what you would really expect. Male puberty is a pretty big deal testosterone is a hell of a drug um this but the second thing i I realized was that like if you read twitter or the media you would have thought that like most people obviously supported someone like thomas but then there's like some bigots who don't and they're conservative and you know that's um unfortunate you know we're gonna we're gonna show you the other side to be fair but like you know let's be real here we know where progress is going but when I was talking to people, the overwhelming majority of people I spoke to, including extremely liberal people, um, were against Thomas swimming. And like spontaneously, like a friend of my mom's who is super liberal is currently trying to figure out how to donate. You know, she and my mom were plotting how, how could they donate their money to help women in red states that outlaw abortion get to blue states where it's legal, right? I mean, these were these are not like <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly types. Um, just, I mentioned, it wasn't like I solicited an opinion. She asked me what I was writing about right now. And I said, oh, I'm just, you know, I was up in, in, um, in Massachusetts watching the finals of the Ivies and writing about Leah Thomas, 20 minute, like just unloading on me about how unfair this was. And that was, it happened to me over and over again. I, in fact, I don't think I met almost anyone who supported Thomas. Um, I have a few friends who do, I'd be like, but it was actually, most people don't, most people didn't support it. Most people were at least ambivalent about it, um, and most in the vast majority were just against it. And like that thing, um, you know, that goes back to the kind of the hard coalitional problems. But the one of the the people who unloaded on me was talking about um, something that you know we had we we go way back. He's way to the left of me. I will uh, shield names to protect the innocent. Um, but, you know, he said to me, um, that he had, he had been like a really, really aggressive advocate of gay marriage and kind of mean to people who were against it of like, how would this affect my marriage, whatever. And, and, uh, and I've been like, I don't know, like social changes, you know, and that doesn't mean I'm against gay marriage, but like social changes are large. I can see that large social changes might make some changes, right? And things, I, I think it might not be static. Culture is complicated, right? Uh, again, with my both sides saying like <laughs> radical skepticism. But uh, he said, you know, I've changed my mind about a lot of this and some of it is is stuff like this. He said, you know, I want to respect people and their trans identity. Um, and I don't want to like tell anyone, I don't want to misgender someone. I don't want to, 
but don't tell me that I can't care about my gender identity, that it can't matter to me that I'm a biological male and that I'm a father, that I'm a biological father and that I'm not allowed to have that identity because it makes you uncomfortable. Right. In the same way that I'm not trying to tell you that you can't have a trans identity and that you can't ask to be referred to you by pronouns and all the rest of it. And, and like, because it makes me uncomfortable. I think, I think both are outrageous, right? It was a really interesting point to me that like, there is a way in which like, you're trying to reshape these fundamental identities that people have been raised with that are important to them in order to make them include people that they would not otherwise have included. And I think that you were getting pushback from saying people saying, look, I don't want to stop you from having your identity. I don't want to, I don't want to say that you're not like authentically trans or whatever. But I don't want you to tell me that my identity doesn't matter at all and has to be redefined for you. And I think that that's, again, this is someone on the left. This is not like, this is, you know, center left now. I think we're all older and wiser. We all kind of, I think you, you kind of scooch, you either get, when you get old, you either get really extreme or you just scooch towards the center because you're like, everything's complicated. And both of us, I think, have scooched toward the center. Um but he's still distinctly left wing. I kind of think and... the center scooched towards us, also. But anyway, <laughs> fair. <laughs> no, I, 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 look. I think you're right. I think that one of the things I, I, I wish we could have better, you know, dynamic scoring for cultural politics, because uh, you know, conservatives and libertarians are really good at talk, talking about the, the sort of multiplier effects of uh, tax cuts or whatever. Um, it'd be good if people understood the multiplier effects of various culture war issues. And, you know, I, I write about this all the time, but like the, the, the obsession with white supremacy and whiteness and the, and all of these things, it causes more people, more white people to actually identify as white, which, and, 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 and there are statistically significant numbers of white people who become more racist, the more you call them racist. Um, and it's a complicated psychological and sociological process and all that. Um, and I could see it being very counterproductive in the, in the short term, at least for the trans cause to lean too heavily into the trans cause. Um, I, there was a, I just saw it the other day. I just looked it up. Pew, um, has a new poll out. I got, I haven't studied it in depth, but this top line caught my eye. It says that 60% of Americans say a person's gender is determined by their sex assigned at birth, up from 56% in 2021 and 54% in 2017. In other words, like, I mean, that's a, it's not a huge leap or anything, but the more you talk about this stuff, the more you actually will also cause people to lock in to an oppositional definition of these things where whereas they might have been just more tolerant if this was seen as one of these quirky thing quirky things on the fringe of the culture it's not the main cause of civil rights in american life um um but when you make it central to like the progressive cause you force people through negative polarization and all sorts of other things to lock into a harder size very much like the abortion stuff we were talking about earlier and yeah. um you know, it'd just be great if people could understand that there's sort of like these Keynesian multiplier effects to things that we do, and sometimes they're unintended. Um, I mean, at least Keynesian multipliers are always implied to be good, right? But like, <laughs> this is more like negative feedback loops or something like that. No, you know? Keynesian multipliers can be bad, right? If you're if you're withdrawing, to, if if say the economy is in in recession, uh, and you take money out of the economy, you can True. multiply it on the downside. I, I think. Um, 
but yeah, I think there's, you know, it's, it's what's salient, right? Is that for in, in 2017, like the distinction between biological and, you know, gender, biological sex and gender was not that salient for most people because it was a small number of people who were, and now that it's, be, you know, kind of exploded onto the culture and it's becoming more salient, people are thinking more about it. And a lot of them are rejecting the the thing that they might have gone along with just as like, you know, they, they were asked a question by a surveyor, they haven't really thought about it before. And like, they just say whatever comes to top of mind. But now that it's, there's more issues around it, around youth transition, around women and, you know, women's sports and, and these things, they may have stronger opinions. I think, I think women's sports is one where it really does. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was, I was talking to a trans person of my acquaintance who just said, like, I think it's, it's like bad, bad sportsmanlike. Right. Mm-hmm. It's on the, that it's unsportsmanlike to do this. It's not that like Leah Thomas isn't really a woman, but that it is, it is somehow like, I think, I think she said bad manners. I know I'm not necessarily endorsing this, but I, I think, you know, again, I'd like, um, my, my ultimate conclusion on Leah Thomas was that I just don't, that the division of gender is division of sports and gender is somewhat arbitrary, not in that there isn't a real division between men and women's performance, but like we don't divide, we don't have a special league for short basketball players, right? The fact that we have a women's league is something of a historical accident. And if you want to redefine it, I think that's fine, but I can't come up with a reasonable definition of women's sports that includes Leah Thomas, who was at the Ivies, um, Mm -hmm. Isaac Hennig from Yale, who is a trans man who has adopted, who has um, decided not to take hormones until, um, he's finished his eligible NCAA eligibility. And I'm not sure if he's a senior or not. So he might have another year left to swim. Um, and all the cisgender women in the pool, they were all in the same pool competing in the same events. And that doesn't make any sense. Like it can't, you know, the, 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 that definition doesn't, why would we have these separate divisions? I don't see it. Um, and I think that a lot of people felt that way, right? I think a lot of people just feel like, well, you know, I don't want to stop you from being you. But when you start doing things that cause women to lose opportunity, biological women to lose opportunities, that's bad sportsmanlike. That's bad sportsmanship, and I'm going to be against that. And that if that means I have to be against you, then I will be against you, right? They're going to reason backwards from rather re- than reasoning forward from you need your identity to be happy. They're going to reason backwards from like cisgender women need sports to be happy. And sorry, that means that you if if it is true that your identity means that you have to be in the pool with them, then you can't have your identity. I think it is, it is dangerous in that way. Now the left's response would of course be, well, you know, should we have like not done civil rights because there were bigots who, who were disgusted by eating lunch counters with people of different races or who people who thought that, you know, the loving's marriage was wrong. Should we have just caved into that because there might be a backlash? Um, and you know, that's, that's a fairly powerful rejoinder, but I think, at the same time, you do have to, I mean, like the civil rights movement spent quite a lot of time thinking about the politics of it. I also would really dispute that this is in the same plane as civil rights. I mean, yeah, I, 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 at the level of gross generalization, it's a perfectly fine analogy to make, but the whole point of intelligent thinking is making, is making significant distinctions where there are superficial similarities. And like, um, one of the things that turned me around on gay marriage was I was I was sufficiently convinced that being gay wasn't a choice, right? That and where that doesn't mean that on the margins there aren't people who are bisexual by choice or whatever, but there's an irreducible number of people who are just simply born gay or homosexual, whatever term I'm supposed to use. 
And once you accept that fact, then you have a societal choice. I mean, I remember Andrew Sullivan talking about this. It's like, you can either tell particularly young gay men, you know, that they can continue to live outside of bourgeois norms and um, be promiscuous, but you can't condemn them for it if you're not giving them access to the institution of marriage, which is supposed to temper those, you know, those impulses. And so, uh, you know, it was a, it was, anyway, I was convinced of that. We now see a lot of people on the left saying, no, 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 it's, it's a choice. It's however you identify. I think that is fraught. And it's particularly fraught if you're going to use the analogy of the civil rights movement to the 1960s, where clearly the people who were denied access to lunch counters weren't black by choice. And, you know, choice and agency have a lot to do with our conceptions of what is, what moral restrictions are right or wrong and to elide over them and sort of take all the, all the moral benefits of, of being, of, 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 of objection, objective identity that is not ruled by choice and none of the negative consequences of identity that is by choice is it, it's it's a cheap tactic i think at the end of the day even though i i think people make it sincerely because they haven't thought it through right i mean i have no question that people that there are people who just like that their their gender dysphoria is something they have and not something they can get rid of right they, it's not something they're choosing and not something but i think it is um it seems more complicated than that. I think, you know, there's some number of kids who are irreducibly gender dysphoric, and then there's some number of kids who grow out of it. Um, and I'm not sure we have a reliable way to distinguish which kids are which, for example. Um, and so there's, this seems to be something that does have more flexibility in it than like, they're, they're very, there are not a lot of cases of, of kids who, you know, hit puberty and realize that they're attracted, of boys who hit puberty and realize that they're attracted to men suddenly at the age of 50, realizing that that was a mistake, right? That they, they weren't, were never attracted to men. And like, you know, the, I, I think that there's, there is something more complicated going on here, which makes it more complicated, certainly than something that is an external, you know, a lot of what's going on with civil rights, right, is, is external. People can mostly, you know, there are accounts of passing, obviously, and so forth, as there are with Jewish people and other, other groups, but like, people can mostly see and they then mostly treat you by what they see. And that's just a different question from what are my internal feelings about something, right? It, 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 because, it's, because it requires, you know, what you required for civil rights was, was often like withdrawing active discrimination. And I think that most people now don't want to see trans people not be able to find, get housing, not be able to right. rate, et cetera, yeah, yeah. not be able to get married or any, anything like that. But it was, but, you know, what, what trans people want is often, like, much more than that, right? It's, like, this active affirmation of, like, use my pronouns, do, like, and, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have it. I'm just saying it, it's a different thing that, that, that they want and need from society. You know, it didn't require most, didn't require medical interventions, didn't require us to decide what to do about kids who have gender dysphoria, but also might also just be, might be going through a phase. And I hate to say like going through a phase, but it might be a phase. Apparently most of, a you know, like the people who used to present the studies that have been done show a lot of people, kids presenting with gender dysphoria and then growing up to be happy gay or even hetero, in some cases, heterosexual adults. I want to be clear about something. I, 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 
when I use the word choice, I don't necessarily mean I today, you know, that people declare, change their sexuality the way Michael Scott in the office declares bankruptcy, right? <laughs> Where they just go out and say, I declare I am a homosexual. I didn't mean it like that. But the, the point is, is that it's, when I say choice is that there are some things that are sort of immutable parts of an identity, regardless of your state of consciousness of any kind, right? So like being deaf People use, you know, I, I had gay friends who make this point that the deaf community and the gay community have some in, interesting similarities. And I don't mean, and I'm not trying to say that being gay is a disability or anything like that. But what I mean is, is that a lot of deaf people are born into hearing families. Right. right? Most gay people are born into heterosexual families, right? Corner cases notwithstanding. And so they have both, both in both instances, and a lot, and some deaf people are born in deaf parents. That happens too. But my point is, is that as a generality, both have to find their community outside of the home, right? If you're born into a very Jewish family, you're raised Jewish, your parents are Jewish, it's, it's Jewiness all over the place, right? Um, you don't have to be eight, turn 18 and find someone who can explain bagels to you or, you know, anything <laughs> like that, right? And, right. um, and by contrast, if you were raised by a Gentile family, then you might find out later that you were Jewish and you might worry about certain things like Tay-Sachs genes or some recessives right. or so forth. But you wouldn't feel essentially Jewish in the way that a person who's raised in a Jewish family does, right? That's right. And, and so I think one of the reasons that poll data I was citing, one of the reasons why I think it's interesting is that, um, as you were saying, in 2017, people weren't talking about this stuff in the same way. I now know virtually everybody I know who has a kid in grade school or high school has to have conversations with their kids about all the transgender stuff because the school and I send my, you know, my kid no longer goes to a liberal private school in DC. Most of my friends' kids go to liberal private schools in DC because liberal private school is redundant in DC. There is no conservative. There is school. the Heights. There is the Heights <laughs> just outside of DC, but I, you know, uh, I did not want to raise. Yes. <laughs> Lucy Goldberg as an Opus Dei Catholic, but um, <laughs> even though some of my best friends are Opus Dei Catholics. So um, uh, my point is, is that you now get, I mean, I can tell you, I, I, again, it's, I don't want to sound like I'm obsessed about this. I am not. But as a political matter, I find it fascinating. You just have lots of parents who have stories about kids in their kids' classes or their ki their own kids. You know, some girl is a tomboy for five minutes. And... Um, all of a sudden, there's all of this institutional and pedagogical support for encouraging these kids to affirm and subscribe to a new permanent identity. I have a friend whose kid in California, you know, I would talk about this with Christine Rosen, you know, they, um, it was like nine-year-old kid, nine-year-old boy was asked whether he liked girls as part of sexual awareness week. And the correct answer for a nine-year-old boy about whether you like girls is either... No, they have cooties. Yeah, no, they're gross. <laughs> um, or I don't know, right? And, and, right. and, and But it, instead, when the teacher asks this and you say, I don't know, they say, okay, then we call you questioning. And it just, talk about path dependence. It puts kids on this thing that, um, that I think makes a lot of very tolerant parents who probably have no problem with grown people becoming, you know, declaring themselves transgender this or that or the other thing, but th they'd like a f more certainty and stability about these kinds of questions for their own kids. And so I can see 
because so much of the progressive left has no limiting principle when they get caught up in a moral crusade. They don't understand that they sort of stop short of certain institutions and let time play itself out. You know, the, the Burkean mindset says, I must bear with infirmities until they fester into crimes, right? You're, you're willing to tolerate an imperfect yeah. world for a little while so society can catch up with certain ideas. But if you, if you have utopian sort of intersectional ideas about how society should work right now in the sort of fierce arrogance of now, you are going to invite backlashes that are counterproductive to, you know, what you want to do. Yeah, I think that there's one thing that I do think is fairly evident from the debate over trans kids is that there's a ton of amateurs who've gotten into the act because this is spreading so far so fast. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and maybe this is like the vanguard of a social change that 100 years will be looking back and saying, like, you know, they weren't going far enough. I don't know. I'll be dead by then. And I, you know, like consigned to the ash heap of history as it were. We're going to have your head frozen. So don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, good. Oh, good. I've always <laughs> wanted to have my head frozen. Um, but th- like, there's a lot of teachers and s- therapists and school counselors and all the rest who have no idea what they're doing, right? They got like a six-hour training from someone, and now they're like ready to go counsel kids who they think might have gender dysphoria, right? And these are complicated questions, and there's a lot of like and I get it, right? If you're a therapist and if a doctor or, and some family shows up at your office, like you don't necessarily, especially in, if you're not in LA or New York or somewhere, you don't necessarily have like a high quality expert clinic that you can nearby that you can refer them to. So you kind of do the best you can. Um, but the, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what's going on now, it's a kind of wild west out there. Um, and that accounts for, by the way, when you hear about like youth transition and you'll, you'll see simultaneously people will be like, well, no one ever does mastectomies on girls under the age of 18, which is false. Um, but they're very convinced it's true. Cause I mean, I think, cause they, they think it shouldn't, it should be true. Right. And therefore it must be true. Um, and, or that no one is doing blockers this early or that no one's starting kids on hormones this early. And like, it's not true. There are people who do it. I mean, it's not necessarily best practice. But, you know, and this is just a broad point about healthcare. From I've now been reporting on healthcare since 2007. Um, and, like, one thing is that if you ever expected that you were going to have a ton of general practitioners and, and you know, random social workers, licensed therapists of various kinds, whether they're social workers or, you know, psychologists or whatever, if you ever thought that you were going to have all of those people suddenly, like, switch on a dime to doing top-quality um, medicine with all of the latest guidelines, you were having a dream. Yeah. That's yeah. not how medicine works. These people, these are people who are seeing patients for like, you know, the, the, the way insurance works, the way all of it works, right? They're, they're not, they don't have the training. They don't have the time to get the training. Um, and that that's going to lead to issues. And I think that a lot of parents are concerned about that. I think that the law also has not really thought through a lot of these issues. I remember like I was talking to uh, actually the same guy who said like, I want my identity he said he and his wife uh, who is a doctor had drawn the line for their kids at puberty blockers. They'd looked into them. His wife had concluded that they were not safe. You know, they can cause loss of bone density, et cetera, et cetera. And that there was not good evidence for them. And again, these are not conservative doctors, and I'm not saying that his wife is right. I'm just saying that this was like his what they had talked about. And I it was shocked when I was like, "You don't necessarily get to make that decision. Child Pro- Protective Services may come in and take your kid away if you refuse to put them on blockers, mm-hmm. or if you ref- if you refuse to, you know, like." Um, and he was shocked. But this is 
stuff that has happened where parents who who aren't supporting kids, the kids will try to leave or like the, the you know, authorities will get well, Look involved. at you proselytizing for libertarianism out there. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, it's, it's just that like, but he didn't know. And this is what I'm saying is that there's all of these, or like what happens if you get divorced and like one of you wants the transition, the other one doesn't, right? I mean, there's all of these, that is a court case in California where like, um, one, the mother wanted uh, to transition the, the child and I don't remember what gender uh, yeah. identity the child had, but the child and the father did not. Um, and there was like a long back and forth. Like these are really hard questions that no one's really kind of caught up to because it's this is the fastest transformation I can ever remember in any social issue ever. Yeah, I mean, compared sure. to gay marriage, yeah, uh, gay marriage was previously the fastest I'd ever seen and that took like 30 years. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, and it had so many sort of prominent gay people in the culture, in leading institutions where people had time to sort of, hey, I know a gay guy, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Like, a lot I saw of people a gay are guy in Will and Grace. He seems normal. Yeah, exactly. I, I, would, I would like to him to get married, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I saw a gay guy on Hollywood Squares, but he, would, he didn't admit it. That's a different story. Yes. Okay, uh, we're we're running up against the end of the clock, but um, I just wanted to get one more thing in, um, since I, I get a certain amount of leeway from listeners to bring up the dogs once, so I can't I can't go back to that. But I would be happy to talk about the dogs for a while longer. Um, um, but you um, you recently wrote about uh, how Democrats should talk about rising crime. Uh, why don't you just sort of just lay out your your advice? Yeah, look. There is always a temptation in politics to say, like, the, the thing that people think is a problem isn't really a problem. And I think, especially for Democrats on crime, because for a long time this was actually true. It's not that crime is always a problem. The optimal number of crimes would be zero, but getting right. to the optimal number of crimes is impossible. We're, like, it would be worse. The, if you imagine a society, how it would have to be set up so that literally no crimes were ever committed, that would be a much worse society than, than what we right. have. It's so, like saying zero traffic deaths is the ideal, yes. which is correct. But we, at, to date, we have no policies that could get us there that wouldn't be worse than yes, the, than you know, everyone right. giving up their car. And so, um, you know, similarly, I think for a long time, there was a kind of hangover from the crime spike. And just for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the data, the crime starts spiking in the 60s. It continues to rise until 1993, and then it starts a long, dec decades-long fall. There are still debates over why this happened, whether it's multifactorial, whether it was primarily driven by lead poisoning from environmental lead, from lead paint, but also the lead that used to be in gasoline that had gotten into the air and into the soil. Um, and so, but whatever it was, this decline happened, but there's like this hangover. So, you know, it, before the 60s, crime policy in America had been mostly reform-minded. Mm -hmm. It had really been about like very getting more and more focused on rehabilitation. Um, you know, the leniency put in some cases put Norway to shame. Um, uh, Bill James has this wonderful description in his wonderful book on popular crime, where he just reads a bunch of uh, true crime novels, uh, true crime books, and then just tells you all about the crimes and reviews the books. And it's hilarious and wonderful and everyone should get it. Um, but he says that, you know, in Kansas, you could by because of all of the like the mandatory good time and the, the you know, man, half mandatory parole and all the rest of it, you could commit murder and kind of get out in three and a half years. Yeah. Um, a thing that like apparently actually happened. And and that was 
maybe tolerable if crime was falling, but it wasn't. It was spiking. And so there was a backlash to it. And we got a lot of tough on crime policies, including the much maligned 1994 crime bill that Hillary Clinton got tarred as being part of, you know, the the mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow problem. And for a long time, the, the line on the left was, you're overreacting. Crime is falling. Why are you obsessed with this? And that was a totally fair critique. Crime was indeed falling. We did not need to punish people harder. And our bigger problem is that jail itself, you know, to go back to something we were talking about earlier, that like these things are complicated. Jail itself can be criminogenic. Sure. Sending sure. someone to prison can basically, who who might otherwise have gone straight, turn someone into a criminal because what do you do in jail? You don't really learn a useful skill. You meet a lot of other criminals, though, and now you have a felony record and you can't get a normal job. And so, um, you know, there there were not only diminishing returns, but arguably like actually counterproductive returns to the last, you know, the first million people we put in jail probably reduced the crime rate. But as you put in the the second million, you're, you're maybe doing more, more harm than good, even if all you want to do is reduce crime and you don't care at all about the effect on the on the people you're putting in jail. Um, but the problem is that they kept saying that even as crime started to go back up and like, absolutely like, you know, the most counterproductive thing is, is to kind of try to do a Jedi mind trick on voters. They did this on inflation too, right? Like these are not the droids you were looking for. Crime is not rising and it was not productive. And I think that this also goes back to another unproductive way that people tended to talk about crime as if it was all just nonviolent drug offenses. It wasn't. It's a lot of rapists and people who, like half of the people who are in U.S. prisons are more than half are there for violent crimes. They're not there because they they got caught smoking some Mary Jane on the corner and a racist white cop put them in jail. Like that's not what, they're, I'm not saying there's no one that has ever happened to, but that is not most of the people in jail. Most of the people who are in jail are there for things that we think people should go to jail for, which means you have to, if you really want to do mass incarceration policy, you really have to think about like, how do I get people out of jail even though they did something super wrong and I need them to stop doing that thing, right? And so what I said is, look, the the critique that the left should be making now, which I think is absolutely right, is that the the right has, for a bunch of reasons, some, some understandable and I think some just kind of mean, like they just don't like criminals and like they view hurting criminals as a kind of positive good independent of whether it rehabilitates them or just deters them or anything else. Um, that, you know, what you want to do, the, 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 that has been a mistake because people who commit crimes, they're like what's known as hyperbolic discounters. They don't, they don't have great impulse control and they're not real great long-term planners. If they were, they would be doing something that pays better than crime because crime is actually not that, does not pay well for right. most people who engage in it. And so what you want to do is instead of just making penalties harsher and harsher, which is what we did, you want to make them more certain. A low chance of going to jail for two weeks can be a better deterrent or a, a, a near high, a very high chance of going to jail for two weeks can be a better deterrent than a very low chance of going to prison for 20 years. Right. And especially for someone who has poor impulse control, right? And so what you want is to rejigger the system towards much less punitive sentences but things that definitely happen so that you definitely are going to go to jail if you commit a crime. And that means, for one thing, more pro- more police so that the crimes get solved. Um, but but it means, like, better parole and better probation options. Um, but it also means that you you actually have to take seriously the fact that crime is bad. We have an interest in deterring it. And by the way, which which communities are most vulnerable to crime? Poor black and brown neighborhoods. That's where, um, right. And so 
if you want, like, if you were saying don't do anything about crime, you are saying let those people be victimized and they don't deserve that. Instead, what we need is a better agenda that recognizes that while criminals did something wrong, they are still people. We still have an interest in helping them to lead future, to be of service to their community, but lead, you know, happy, productive lives. And we should not punish them more than we need to in order to get the message across that you really shouldn't do this. It's a bad idea that won't pay off. This brings back so many memories for me because in the 90s, when I worked for Ben Wattenberg, um, I was all about crime stats, you know, and the, the certainty of punishment argument is exactly right. I used to, I used to think about it like, you know, the, the comparison is that I used to make is think about a electroshock for smoking cigarettes, right? Like you, you're going to get better results if you give a short shock every single time someone smokes than you'd get if you knew that you get a long shock one out of a hundred times you smoke. And, um, uh, because what you're trying to do is sort of deal with the impulse control problem. And, um, um, and the, the, you know, you make a very good point, you know, the, the first million people put in jail, you're almost guaranteed to have success. Cause you know, the, the, the sort of, um, landmark study on this was by the guy Marvin Wolfgang, uh, who studied a whole cohort of boys in the, in Philadelphia, I think in the forties and fifties or the fifties and sixties. And he found that something like 7% of the population commits over half the crimes there's a small group of people who commit most crimes. And one of the racist ways we talk about crime is, is that we say there's a disproportionate number of black people committing crimes. So therefore black people commit crimes disproportionately. Statistically that's superficially true, but the problem is, is that the vast, vast majority of black people don't commit crimes. Um, and we, it's sort of one of these false, you know, uh, spurious correlation things. And, um, but the, the, I am, just just a veer into rank punditry. I am stunned that Biden's political instincts are as bad as they are on this stuff. Because first of all, he's got a story to tell about something he actually accomplished on on the crime stuff. I mean, I didn't like the '94 crime bill, probably for not the same reasons the left doesn't like it. Um, but uh, he did it, and he's got a long track record on it. And as you say, I mean, crime is a regressive tax on poor people. It makes their lives so much worse. P people up the economic, socioeconomic ladder can avoid crime in ways that poor people can't. And it makes their lives literally more expensive in all sorts of ways. And poor people know that. You know? <laughs> I mean, like, it's their lives. And, and the, he could have gone so much further attacking the defund the police stuff. He could go so much further sort of annoying the progressive base of his party and proving to the middle that he's like them. And he just, he, 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 he hasn't found the voice to do that. And I just, it's such political malpractice. Well, I think this goes back to what we've been talking about in terms of partisanship um, and in terms of, you know, on both sides, right? Is like, I have to pretend that Trump didn't do this right? because now this is just about my team. And similarly, you know, I think Biden's instincts would be to to moderate, but his staffers' instincts are not. And his staffers have to, you know, Biden is not thinking about where his next job is going to be, but his staffers are. And they have to think about keeping peace within the coalition and not making enemies. Um, and I think that the incentives to do that as partisanship ratchets up, they get higher and higher, right? Is the the incentive is to to stick with your team because the other team won't have you. 
Yeah. Right. They they won't ever do anything for you. And so you have to stick with your team no matter what. And it's absolutely toxic and poisonous. But I think that it is is where we are in politics today. And it's really sad because I agree with you. There are so many opportunities to I mean, just to be more innovative. Like one of the I don't have a lot of good words for Donald Trump, but on criminal justice reform, he actually did something that was out of step with the history of his party. And it was good. It was popular. And it was also correct. And that is something that that I think Biden could usefully do is say, like, look, I take mass incarceration seriously. I don't want more incarceration, but I, I want to protect people from victimization, which is why he's done a little bit of it. We're putting more cops on the street. But, you know, th- this should be a major thing is like, we're going to help cities get crime down. We're going to help them find the money to revamp their probation and parole system so that to along the lines of it's a model known in the in criminal justice uh, scholarship as swift, certain and fair. Um, so that, you know, like the rules are the rules. And every time you violate you, you go straight back to jail, but you go for a couple nights or you go for a couple weeks so that you can still hold a job. If you have a job, we'll let you do it on the weekends, right? This is worked with a program called 24 seven sobriety in North Dakota, maybe South Dakota, South Dakota. Um, it's also worked where with, with drunk drivers, they've got to blow into a breathalyzer two times a day. And if they fail the breathalyzer, they go to jail, but they go to jail for a few days, not for like the 20 years that they'll get if they drive their car and kill someone. Can you do it at like 9 a.m. and then at 10 a.m.? Because I could do, I could, I could get, a, I could pass that. <laughs> I think, um, I think it is 12 hours apart. Damn it. Um, yeah. yeah. So like, I, I, I'm doing a little tongue in cheek devil's advocate here because I understand why, I understand there are the problems, but. If you really wanted to get innovative, there is a case to make, and again, I am not necessarily endorsing it, I'm just stating it, that some forms of corporal punishment would be better, because if it would be swift, it'd be instant. Um, the one thing that you cannot make more of in life is time. And like for you and me, I, I think you would rather 20 lashes of a cane than uh, 10 years in jail, right? Uh, and um, yes, I think that's correct. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I've never had to make that choice. So I'm, I'm yeah. <laughs> and then we, since we don't live in Singapore, it, it's yes. not a, it's not a live option. And I'm not saying I want to live in Singapore, but I'm just saying that mm. coming up with swifter, obviously not permanently, do, you know, you don't want to be like hobbling people like in misery or anything like that, but like, uh, swifter forms of novel punishment. There's an argument for it. Um, um, particularly so this is the argument of the uh, Peter Moskos's book in defense of flogging, um, yeah, 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 which yeah, yeah. like is a little bit tongue in cheek, um, but also not entirely. No, there's and a real think, truth to it. Yeah, you know, I well, I, so I think that the pushback on that, because I, I take those arguments seriously, actually, um, is that the kind of society that delivers there's a kind of brutality to it to who's delivering it right and 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 one of the reasons that one of the many reasons i oppose the death penalty is there's a brutality to it and that being a society that is brutal in that way is kind of fundamentally unhealthy no um, i agree this is going to get to this sort of unintended consequences of dynamic cultural stuff living in a society where we're constantly you know whipping or beating people yeah, a lot of unintended uh, bad consequences that can come from that, and I find that argument very persuasive. I just want to be clear about that. But like, um, I get it. Well, so one thing that we we haven't tried exploiting, and I find interesting, is John Ronson writes about this in his book on uh, on on shaming, 
Mm-hmm. And where a judge sentenced someone who I believe had killed someone, uh, had killed a woman um, dr- driving drunk, sentenced this man to stand on the in the median of the highway I remember where that, yeah. he had done it and, and wearing a sign saying what he'd done. Yeah. And now I, that might guy might well have preferred 10 years in jail to doing yeah, that. But yeah, yeah, what was yeah. actually super interesting was it was both apparently a quite effective punishment and that people were much less harsh about it than you would think is that people actually, and I think that this goes to when we're confronted with it, one of the many problems with our criminal justice policy is that it's not that like people aren't horrified by someone who drives drunk and, and kills someone. We are. In fact, we think that is a bad person or a person who did a bad thing, let me say. Um, and yet, like we also understand when we're confronted with a real human being, we see them in their complexity and we see that they are more than the worst thing they've ever done. And we want to help restore them to the community. And that these, those sorts of, so that, I mean, it's, it seems to me that like before we ex- we explore capital punishment, we might productively explore more shaming punishments yeah, and not yeah. of the kind that are handed out on Twitter, but the ones that are actually in person where like you have to kind of actually tell people what you did and you have to be upfront about it and you have to do it to strangers and you have to do this hard thing. Um, we might actually find that, that that would be better for both criminal and crime. Um, on a number of levels and for the community because it would focus us on recognizing that something bad happened, expressing our disapproval of that bad thing, but also giving people a path back. And I think one of the worst things about our criminal justice system is that once you have a felony on your record, it's basically impossible to get just a decent job or almost impossible. There are companies like the Cokes, weirdly. I mean, it's not weird to me, but it's weird to a lot of people who have this kind of caricature of the Cokes in their head. They're super focused on, they hire people, they want to, you have to tell them about your criminal record, um, but they will, it doesn't count against you as long as you tell them about it. Um, And so I think there's a real, like they, and they are one of the few places I've seen that like aggressively and actively hires ex-felons who committed serious crimes, including like economic crimes of stealing from their employer and stuff. Um, And they rehabilitate those people. And that's fantastic. And we need way more of that. We could go on, but I actually have to write a G file. We've gone 90 minutes, so it's not bad. But um, uh, I think we can both agree that there there would be problems or at least challenges if we then set up in the executive branch the position of public humiliation czar. Um, <laughs> because of the kinds of people I, uh, it I would, would argue attract. that we already have that position, <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> I won't name who I think is filling it right now, but... Uh, you know, in the last in the last presidency, it was obviously Donald Trump himself. Um, but yeah, I, we probably probably you can't do that. But I, I, yeah, we, this is the problem. It needs it needs better branding, right? Yeah, yeah. We can't yeah. just say bring back the stocks. We need like uh, some sort of really good sounding, uh, some really good sounding name for it. Gotta so, get George uh, work Lake on off that, on this. Okay, I will. Yes, <laughs> May Ricardo, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it, and um, I hope I hope you come back. I'm always happy to come back to the remnant. All right, so uh, Megan has left the studio. I know we went long, but I like talking to Megan. Um, and uh, I could talk to her all day. And I make no apologies for it. Uh, I got nothing nothing exciting to announce. Um, I'm going to do the solo podcast this week. And um, got a lot of feedback from people saying that I sounded uh, exhausted or depressed or, or, or full of ennui. 
I apologize if I sounded that way. Uh, a lot of stuff going on, but um, I am not depressed. Um, I am not suffering from ennui or existential dread or um, any of that kind of thing. Uh, but we'll talk more about that later. Uh, had a fun dispatch live last night with the with the old school crew of me, David, Sarah, and that Hayes guy. Um, if you became a member, you could have watched it live, or you could be downloading it today to watch it at your leisure. I just saw in my email that we had the launch of Sarah Isger's book club. Very exciting. Um, again, one of the benefits of measurement, of uh, measurement, of membership. Um, and uh, um, I got to go write a G file and then go on CNN and, and, and all that stuff. So I'm going to get out of here. Thanks again to Megan McArdle. Thank you uh, for listening. Uh, shame on the youngins at the dispatch for their actions or failures that led to uh, the dispatch losing to Brookings in softball, um, which is uh, is a failure that if we were in the Yakuza, I would require all of them, whether they played or not, to remove at least part of a finger um, for Brookings to Linda Est. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.